Father, we do owe all to your Son, Jesus Christ. We owe everything, our lives, our service, everything that we can give, we offer to you. Lord, as we look into your word this day, we pray that you would you would grant us the insight that your spirit would move in such a way that we would understand and be able to apply the things that you have taught us. We ask this through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Please have a seat. So in in all the militaries in the world, one of the most ancient traditions is what in our variety of services today I call a dining in or a, a mess night or a, a regimental dinner, something along those lines. And historically, it's, it's very ancient. It is older even than the, the salute. The, the event was designed very specifically as a means whereby warriors would be able to have a socially acceptable way uh, to burn off uh, some steam, to counterbalance combat uh, with fun. Of course, in the ancient version, I don't know if it was all that fun, you know. I mean, the, you would end up with these contests to either first blood or perhaps death. But all that today is just symbolic. But it's difficult to control something like that. It can get out of uh, hand. If it were not for uh, a, the rules, there are rules that need to be abided by. So what are some of the governing uh, rules in, in that particular event? Some of them, at least in the Air Force, were thou shalt not leave the mess whilst convened. Protocol overrides all calls of nature. Thou shalt ensure thy glass is always charged when toasting. Thou shalt not murder the king, queen's English. Thou shalt fall into disrepute with thy spears, uh, spears, <laughs> with thy peers if the pleats of thy cummerbund are not properly faced. If you don't know what a cummerbund is, it doesn't help at all. But if you do know what it is, the pleats are always up. <laughs> Thou shalt express thy approval by tapping thy spoon on the table. Clapping will not be tolerated. Now, here's the thing. These rules are rules that most typically you're not given in advance. One of the penalties is if you are caught reading the rules, and, and so infractions of the rules invariably end in punishment which consists of going to what is known as the grog bowl. Now, the grog bowl is usually a toilet that's filled with all manner of noxious elements that one is uh, penalized. You have to go and drink from it. It's always a brand new toilet. <laughs> Never used. The noxious elements uh, simply uh, are for appearance only. Anyway, the point is, is that there are rules in order to govern behavior. And without them, there would be little humor uh, and uh, certainly no fun. But with them, it can be absolutely hilarious 
Right? And it's not much different from what we have at home. We have rules. All of you have uh, rules in your home, whether they're written or not. You know, take your shoes off when you come in the door. Now, that may never be said, but it becomes clear over time. No, no yelling, only eating in the dining room or the kitchen. Keep your feet off the furniture. Don't touch the remote. Whatever you do, don't touch the thermostat. There are thermostat wars, even in the church. Put the toilet seat down. Shirts on at the dinner table. No video games till homework's done. And don't yell from the other room. Did any of you ever do that? It was constant with me. Johnny, uh, go get your brother. Steve! You know, I could have yelled. Go get him. Anyway, we all have, we have rules. Uh, Each of our girls clearly remember a picture that uh, hung in our kitchen, which was a, a mother hen and a, with an apron, hands on hips, with uh, little chicks staring up at her in awe, and the caption read, because I'm the mama. And, and it, that picture refers to house rules. Every house has rules, including this one. The church of God, God's house, has rules, not only in belief, but also in in function. And it is designed in accordance with God's will. I mean, one of the significant issues that happened in, uh, after the Reformation, which I so wanted to speak of a little bit this morning, but uh, there were so many people I didn't I didn't have time. Suffice it to say this, that a part of the Reformation was actually Martin Luther climbing the Scala Santa, which is the steps that were taken from Jerusalem to Rome, which were believed the steps that Jesus himself walked up when he went before Pontius Pilate. And he climbed up those things on his knees, saying the Lord's Prayer and variety of other things as others might do when they're trying to earn merit and favor with God by the sacrifice. You end up with bloody knees and everything else. And when he got to the top, he said to himself, what if this is nonsense? What if this doesn't mean how in the world can me being on my knees going up steps have anything to do with my salvation? And thus really began the kernel of truth that began the Reformation. And it was out of the Reformation that they were trying to figure out how in the world now does the household of God operate. Because what we see is that scriptures never intended multi-level clergy, never intended deep hierarchy. How do we function in the church without all those authority structures over us? Well, the Apostle Paul has told us about elders, and he has told us about deacons. And he writes here in 1 Timothy, if you have your Bible open, to 1 Timothy chapter 3, we'll look at verses 14 and 15. In 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, the Apostle Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things 
to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. I I really enjoy verses like this, especially with Paul, because Paul is uh, a, a teacher par excellence, right? His teaching is what's called didactic. So you can take with Paul, and it becomes very easy to say, point one A, one two B, one two, and then uh, come to a conclusion. But occasionally, he will say things like this, where his humanity is 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 revealed. It, it shows that his hope, and yet how realistic he is, and how helpful he always is. And this. These two verses are actually a hinge in this entire book. Um, As a new chaplain, I attended an event where I was seated with uh, a number of general officers at at a, a table. And as the program unfolded, it was very clear that each individual part of the program was done with excellence. However, in between, not so much. There were sound issues, there were awkward silences, there was uh, some uncertainty there. And one of the general officers leaned over to the, another one, and he said this, and it marked my experience as a chaplain from that day until my experience now. And he said, quality is in the seams. In other words... It doesn't matter how well this part or this part or this part went. Without the transitions, without the seams, it loses much of its value. And here in these two verses, we're moving from one part of the book to another. Paul knew quality, and he weaves these verses in as the seams that move from the duties and roles of ministry within the church to one's inner life and conduct. And it appears that the Apostle Paul would be unable to come as soon as he had, had wanted to, so he wrote Timothy in order to strengthen him, in order to encourage him there. And it's clear, particularly right here, that Paul is speaking directly to Timothy. I am writing these things. I, first person singular, am writing these things to you, singular, hoping to come to you, singular, before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you, singular, will know how one ought to conduct himself. And then a marvelous thing. If you were to be in the presence of the Apostle Paul and ask him to describe the nature of the church to you, what does that look like? That's what he does right here. He says here, he gives Timothy three metaphors for understanding the church. And in understanding the nature of the church, we understand how it is that we are to behave in the church. First, he says that the church is as a family. Second, 
he says it is an assembly or a gathering. Third, he says it's a pillar and a buttress. So what do these metaphors mean to us, to you and me? What do they teach us about God's desire, about how we conduct ourselves? Because the Apostle Paul, uh, uh, more than any other writer, gives doctrine, good doctrine. We understand what it is we're to know, what it is we're to understand, what it is that we are to believe. But there are also things that he tells us about how we are to behave. And I love this because what we end up with is not necessarily thou shalt do this and thou shalt not do this. He gives us principles whereby whatever situation we find ourselves in, we will know how to respond. First, he says that we're part of a church, a household. That means that we're to behave like family members with each other. Of course, this word household can literally mean house, but meaning referring to a building. But trust me, as beautiful as this is, this is not the church. This is the church. God cares more about how we act and deal with one another than whether we run in an aisle in the building. That's not his concern. It may be our concern. We don't want someone to trip and get rug burned or something. But the truth is, it's how we behave with each other. Paul wrote in Ephesians 3, 14 and 15, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. The church of God is his family, and it's full of, we're told in Matthew 12, it's full of brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers. And in fact, even though Jesus Christ clearly in our worship every Sunday, we understand this completely, even though he is our God Romans 8.29 tells us that he is also our brother, which gives us an entirely distinct understanding about, as Daniel mentioned this morning, what it means to be an heir. Because those, Romans uh, 8.29 tells us, whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Therefore, the reality is that the church of uh, God being a family should impact. It should affect how we treat one another. In 2005, 2007, and 2010, I had the opportunity to meet with Lieutenant General uh, Hal Moore. Perhaps you don't know who he is, never heard of him, perhaps. But he's the commander who the story centers around, and we were soldiers uh, once and young. And it was about the first air cav uh, operation, and large-scale operation, at least in, in Vietnam. On the eve of the battle at I Drang, then uh, Lieutenant Colonel Hal Moore said to his troops, and I want to I quote this. 
to you because I want you to have an understanding of what I believe the Apostle Paul means when he talks about the church as family. Not necessarily what my family looks like and how we respond in it or yours, but family as a principle. And this is what he said. He said, look around you. The 7th Cavalry, we've got a captain from the Ukraine, another from Puerto Rico. We've got Japanese, Chinese, blacks, Hispanics, Cherokee Indians, Jews and Gentiles, all Americans. Now, in the States, some of you in this unit may have experienced discrimination because of race or creed. But for you and me now, that is all gone. We are moving into the valley of the shadow of death where you will watch the back of the man next to you and he will watch yours and you won't care what color his skin is or by what name he calls God. They say we're leaving home. We're going to what home was always supposed to be. You see, when you gather around something that's more important than all the little things that divide us, you find yourself united. And that's the way we should operate in a family. And that's the kind of family connection that we're to experience in the church. Perhaps you may know it by uh, another a name, whether it's a brotherhood or a, a sisterhood. Nevertheless, there are these deep connections. In fact, Paul himself wrote, moving from Hal Moore to the Apostle, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live in on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and boundaries for their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. So what does that mean to us? I mean, at a really practical level, what does that mean uh, to us? A couple of notions come to my mind. Because the church is God's family, we should show familial love to one another. So in just a few weeks, we'll see uh, further on in 1 Timothy, Paul is going to say, don't address an older man uh, harshly, but appeal to him as, as, he, as if he were your father. 
speak to younger uh, men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with complete uh, purity. We're to treat older men and women with respect as we would our parents. And we're to encourage and challenge uh, younger uh, men and uh, brothers, and we're to care for younger women as sisters. Brothers, sisters, I mean, do we show familial love? That's a question that can actually serve as a barometer as our relationship with God. Because what we understand, and I don't have time to go into this, but you've heard this, you know this, you understand this, that your horizontal relationships are indicative of your vertical relationship. In other words, if your horizontal relationships with those around you cannot be restored, cannot be redeemed, are always being messed up, then guess what? That says something about your vertical relationship with God. If your vertical relationship with God is right, then yes, there are those times, the Apostle Paul tells us, where things get messed up, they get blown out of shape, and there's nothing you can do about that. But by and large, your relationships will be on track. So it means a number of things. It implies that we share problems and hardships. It means that we bear burdens with each other and we work hard We work diligently and intentionally about reconciling conflicts when they arise. It means that we're constantly seeking the best for others as one would with a mother or a father or a sister or a brother. Or I would just to complete that from a mother and father perspective, a son or a daughter. Long ago, I adopted the practice of referring to believers with familiar terms, uh, as was common in the New Testament. When I call you brother, it is not by accident, it is not by habit, and it's not by tradition. I do so intentionally. When I call you sister, it's an intentional statement about who you are in relationship to me under the word of God in the family of God. Second, because the church is God's family, we need to prioritize one another. I alluded to that just a second ago. Galatians 6.10 says this, So then, whenever we have an opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of faith. I mean, here the Apostle Paul calls for believers to prioritize the body of Christ over others. It doesn't mean that we don't do good to all. It doesn't mean that we don't have a love for all. But when it comes to the family, inside the family, we're intentional and we especially do that there. Paul is calling for us to prioritize In a natural family, I mean, I think members feel some responsibility for participating in gatherings and events and celebrations, dinners, outings, vacations, whatever. Uh, This should be true 
with our church family as well. The second metaphor that Paul so that you understand that family and understanding of family should guide how we are with one another. But secondly, Paul tells Timothy, he says, Timothy, not only that, but the house of God, that meaning us, the house of God functions as an assembly of the living God. Now, with the word church, when you read that, depends on different versions you, you read that. The word actually means assembly, which is oftentimes you'll, you'll hear um, us refer to certainly in any kind of public or even written way, the assemblies. Be, that's what the word means. It just means uh, assembly. And the funny thing is, uh, while we're not uh, political uh, as an institution, although some try to be more so these days, especially in the last several uh, decades, nevertheless, uh, the word actually came from the uh, word that meant to meet together politically. So, for example, if you understand in even in Israel, the Knesset, okay, that's the assembly. Uh, so that's a ruling uh, body that they have. But the notion here is that it's a, it's a gathering, but it's not just any gathering. It's a gathering to the living God. Now, living God was a very common phrase in the Old Testament. Uh, David said uh, this. I just love, I mean, David had such a, a wonderful, wonderful uh, beginning. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he defies the armies of the living God? That's what we're told in First Samuel 17. The Jews worshipped the living uh, God, and the other nations worshipped, by contrast, dead idols. Now, in Ephesus, where Timothy was, and where Paul about was uh, writing to him, you have to understand there was this temple there, the Temple of Diana. Some of your versions will say Artemis, but regardless, the same that's the same uh, uh, goddess. And in that context, there was a tiny, tiny congregation who worshipped the living uh, God, surrounded by a sea of the worship of uh, dead idols. So what does that mean for us in particular? I mean, first, it tells us that if we're an assembly of the living God, it reminds us that God meets us when we are gathered in a unique way, in a special way. And this is particularly true uh, when we have our breaking of uh, bread, but he is certainly with us in all of these uh, contexts. And what uh, consider Hebrews uh, chapter 10. And let us take thought of how to spur one another on to love and good works, not abandoning our own meetings, not forsaking the gathering, the meeting, as some do, uh, but encouraging one another and even more as we see the day approaching. So with this notion of God being among us, how much more should we be desirous of being together, knowing that he's going to meet us in a unique way? Something that is different 
than when we're out on a, a, a mountain or a valley and seeing the sunrise and the sunset. Is that worship? I believe that it can be. But God meets us in a special way when we are together. How much more then should we want to meet together? And finally, Paul tells us that the church is a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Now, um, we could really get lost here. I certainly could. But truth has fallen on uh, hard times. Uh, in fact, truth has been weaponized. It, it literally, there are institutions dedicated to spin. You know what spin is, right? How to lie better. Um, now, this has always been true, okay? That truth has always been uh, weaponized, but that was almost exclusively the realm of palace intrigue. This is something royals do with one another. This is something that the elite pass around with one another and have all of these uh, uh, things, deceptions and intrigues and in distortions that are going on. But with the advent of the Internet and social media, we've been sucked as a population into all of that nonsense. And so now truth very has a very little uh, stock. Because you have to understand, if you understand this, and, and I, I don't mean to imply that you may not, but just so it serves as a reminder, truth today does not matter. Uh, what matters today, I mean, in the world, what matters is narrative. It doesn't matter what actually happened. It only matters what you say about what happened. It's the story that's told, not the facts. However, Christianity is absolutely dependent upon not narrative, but reality. I don't care what you say or what you believe. If Jesus Christ is not raised from the dead, then you are still dead in your sins. You see, reality matters. Narrative based on truth matters. And because we hold forth the truth and speak the truth, we are hated. Now, we have not seen the full force of that hatred yet. But it is coming. Perhaps some of you have seen it in small measure. Perhaps those of you who look at the church around the globe have seen a story or perhaps bear witness to it. But Christianity, because of its high view of truth, must hold forth, as we're told in Scripture, the word of truth. I mean, today you have people that, I mean, even in the church, spew this nonsense. In other words, they'll say things like, well, you know, Jonah didn't actually have to be swallowed by a fish in order to be true. This is what they'll this is what they'll tell you. You see, it's not the event, but the telling of the event. 
But Paul says that if Christ is not risen from the dead, then we're to be pitied. In our world, we, we don't really know and understand the pillar and the support of the truth. But if you lived in Ephesus, that reference would have been abundantly, absolutely clear. Remember that goddess I spoke of, Diana Artemis? There was a temple there in Ephesus that was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So we're not talking about some small thing. William Barclay wrote this about it. One of its features was its pillars. It contained 127 pillars, each of one uh, of them a gift of a king. All were made of marble, and some were studded with jewels and overlaid with gold. The people of Ephesus knew well how beautiful a thing a pillar could be, and may well be that the idea of the word pillar here is not so much support as dis- display, but it is, in fact, both. In other words, it's a matter of supporting, holding the truth, but holding uh, forth the, the, the truth. And the foundation and the pillar of the Temple of Diana were a testimony to the error of false religion, but the church, it's the testimony to God's truth. So how can churches and individual Christians fulfill this notion of pillar and foundation of truth? First, the individual Christians must believe in the word of God. You wouldn't think I'd need to say that, and perhaps to this particular congregation it doesn't need to be said, but the truth is, as a general notion, the church writ large in the United States has raised a generation or two of people who are biblically illiterate. There are people in the church who do not believe what it teaches about creation or about salvation or about men, or about women, or about eternity, particularly hell. Churches at large have not done well. Worse, a generation of Christians uh, who don't even believe the Bible at all. They think it's nonsense. Yet Paul said this, Every scripture is inspired by God, and useful for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, so that the person dedicated to God may be capable and equipped for every good work. He didn't say some. He said every. Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by some of the words, by most of the words. No. By every word that comes from the mouth of God. We must believe Scripture. Second, churches and individual Christians must study the Word. You know, uh, 2 Timothy 2.15, which will go in a couple of months, will be there. Study to show thyself approved, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. One of the reasons Christians come down with wrong doctrine is because they're not studying the word of God. They simply accept what their parents or their pastors or someone on some podcast has told them instead of affirming it themselves. 
In Acts 17, we're told that the Bereans were called noble. I'd love to go in that word. Noble, but just, just briefly, noble is a framing square. That's what the word noble actually came from, is a framing square. In other words, it's, it's a right measurement. It's understood. Scripture is seen as something that will keep us from error. Finally, uh, churches and we as individual Christians must not only believe it and study it, you gotta, you got to live it. James one twenty two says, but uh, be sure you live out the message and do not merely listen to it and so deceive yourselves. I mean, suppose the church as a pillar and foundation of the truth. In that case, you must have orthodoxy and orthopraxy. That is a right belief, but also right practice, right living. And it must hold a sound uh, doctrine, of course, to, to live that out. Sadly, a lot of people, and I don't buy this, but there is a certain element of this that is arguable, that people have pushed out of the church because of what they've seen in some cases. Living in sin, hypocrisy, those kinds of things discredit the word of God. 1 Timothy 4.16 says this, Be conscientious about how you live and what you teach. Persevere in this, because in doing so you will save both yourself and those who listen to you. So are we affirming the truth by practicing it? If we don't know the purpose of something, if we don't know the nature of something, the character of something... Paul tells us that the church is a family. It's a gathering and it is a pillar and foundation, a buttress of truth. Paul told Timothy that we need, in essence, to treat each other like family members, to have a sense of reverence, of of There's something special about gathering together with God in our presence. And we need to diligently hold to and hold forth the word of his truth. Father, we we come before you today and we pray that in all these things we we would be able to say amen that we would be able to say not only do we know that the church is a family, but we've experienced the, the warmth that belonging can give. Lord, that in gathering that we've experienced the movement of the Spirit of God among us. And Lord, that as we hold forth and hold to your word, Uh, that we would be good stewards, no shame. We thank you and we praise you for all the good things you give to us. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.